Hello, Julia. So when I say knuckleheads, panheads, and shovelheads, what, if anything, comes to mind? I really want the answer to be sharks because I love sharks and like hammerheads, but I know it's not. So tell me what that's it a, is. That's a very, very interesting answer. <laughs> and I'm slightly disappointed because I know you were raised by a gearhead. So I was, that's true. Those are actually nicknames for the different engine designs of Harley Davidson motorcycles. And so today's story is the story of Harley Davidson. For those of us who grew up in Milwaukee and live in Milwaukee, we may not immediately think of Harley Davidson when we think of our hometown. But there are legions of people, not only in the U.S., but around the world, that if you say Milwaukee, the very first thing they think of is Harley Davidson. It's true. I've seen it a number of times in my various travels, and I'm sure you have too. Yeah, definitely. Harley Davidson's were not the first motorcycles ever built. That honor goes to the German inventors Gottlieb Daimler and Wilhelm Maybach. They designed and built the very first motorcycle in 1885. It featured a heavy wooden frame, wooden wheels, and an internal combustion engine designed by Daimler. And then Daimler, along with Carl Benz, went on to become the inventor of the first automobile a year later, and Daimler would never design another motorcycle ever again. The idea of a motorcycle made in Milwaukee had its beginnings in 1895, when a very charismatic character with a gift for publicity and promotion named Edward Pennington presented his, his prototype for a motorcycle to be produced right here in Milwaukee. The machine was the talk of the town, and investors were eager to back the idea. Pennington then left for England, where he was supposedly raising additional funds from additional investors. And he was basically never heard from again. And he disappeared with all the Milwaukee investors' money. Bummer. Yeah, so much for that project. Although it may have been Pennington's scam that inspired two teenagers who lived in Milwaukee at the time, William Harley and Arthur Davidson. By the turn of the century, there were well over a dozen manufacturers of motorcycles in the United States, and young Harley and Davidson were eager to get into the business. Starting in 1902, they'd been tinkering unsuccessfully for over a year to design and build their own motorcycle. Fortunately, at the same time, Arthur Brothers Bill Davidson was getting married and Arthur Davidson wrote to his oldest brother, Walter, to tell him that when he came to visit for the wedding, they would also have a motorcycle for him to ride. Walter, who had always been a tinkerer himself and an avid bicycle rider, was so excited about the motorcycle that he quit his job as a railroad machinist in Kansas and eagerly came to Milwaukee, both for the wedding and to get his hands on that motorcycle. When Walter arrived in Milwaukee, Neither Bill Harley nor Arthur Davidson were thrilled with Walter's assessment of their motorcycle. He thought the bicycle frame was too light and too small, and the engine was way underpowered. Despite some initial hard feelings, the pair went back to work improving their bike in the Davidson's 10 by 15 backyard shed. And by 1903, they had improved the electrical system, increased the engine to three horsepower, and built the bike around a sturdy, full-loop frame with a stout front fork. By coincidence, it was a neighbor of theirs who helped provide assistance in improving the new larger engine, and his name was Ole Evinrude, who would later go on to become the inventor of the very first outboard motor. But that's probably a story for another day. The single-cylinder 178-pound motorcycle could hit a top speed of 35 miles an hour with the wind at your back and would come to a stop with only a rear coaster brake. So basically that means like you step backwards on the pedals go backwards on the pedals and it's so yeah so like when you when you're at a bicycle you, you yeah. pedal forward but coaster a lot, brakes 
you pedal backwards to 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 put the brakes on. But I know a lot of bike enthusiasts really don't enjoy. They like they don't like that kind of brake. Well, I haven't had one since my Schwinn Bantam in about fifth <laughs> yeah. grade. So, um, yeah, I was actually curious about that myself, and I discovered that coaster brakes were already the most common type of brake used by American bicycle manufacturers at the time. And so that was what was readily available for the, for the two Harley and Davidson. Um, and Americas didn't really have handbrakes. It was the European bicycle makers who were the pioneers of the handbrake. Okay. Um, so over time, handbrakes, yeah, uh, for the front wheel eventually did gain ground and, and it became the industry standard today. Interesting. And so it was Arthur, da Arthur and Walter's Aunt Janet who also added her, her artistic talents by painting the Harley Davidson name and pinstripes on all of these early bikes all which were painted black with gold stripes. The company only produced three bikes in both 1903 and 1904. They didn't produce many motorcycles in those years, but they focused on durability and build quality that they hoped would eventually pay off in sales volume. In 1906, Harley and Davidson Brothers moved, Harley and the Davidson Brothers moved their production from the backyard to their first factory on Juneau Avenue, the same location where the current corporate headquarters is located today and they boosted production to 50 bikes a year. 1907 was a big year for the company, even if sales were not. William Harley graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Madison with his engineering degree, and naturally, he joined Arthur and Walter Davidson as a full-time employee. Bill Davidson then quit his job as a Milwaukee Road foreman to join the company as well, and Harley Davidson was officially incorporated in September of that year. It was also about this time that Harley-Davidson gained a reputation and a nickname to go along with it. Early combustion engines were loud, smoky, and in many cases unreliable. Not only that, but they had a tendency to frighten pedestrians, annoy the neighbors, and spook horses. Starting in 1906, Harley-Davidson started painting all their motorcycles gray instead of black. A Harley-Davidson Harley owner's manual from that time said, quote, Our claim that the Harley-Davidson is the cleanest, most silent, most comfortable, and the most economical motorcycle are rather broad but can easily be verified. Its extreme cleanliness is due to the fact that all moving parts requiring oil are fully enclosed. As for silence, the Harley-Davidson is known everywhere as the silent gray fellow. So yeah, I'm not exactly sure what happened between then and now, but apparently Harleys used to be quiet, and they were darn proud of it. It was also at about this time that Arthur Davidson, head of marketing, started investing heavily in advertising. Arthur was relentless in promoting Harley-Davidson motorcycles in magazine and newspaper ads. His first advertising slogan was, the Harley-Davidson makes good because it's made good. In 1908, they sold 450 bikes, and in 1909, they sold over 1,100. Arthur Davidson also started pursuing fleet contracts with police departments and post offices in cities all across the U.S. Those relationships not only boosted sales and production, they also proved to be of enormous value in the future when times were tough. In 1911, Harley introduced their first successful V-twin engine that would come to be synonymous with the Harley brand. The engine provided nearly twice the power and speed as their single-cylinder bike, but weighed only 50 pounds more. And by 1913, the majority of the 13,000 bikes that Harley's made and sold were the V-Twin. The 19-teens were an interesting transition for both the motorcycle industry in general and for Harley-Davidson. Up until this time, motorcycles had actually been slightly more dominant in sales as motorized transport in the U.S. 
However, with improved technology and manufacturing processes, and with steep reductions in costs, by about 1913 or so, automobiles began to quickly outsell motorcycles. Ford Model Ts in particular were sold more cars than all other auto manufacturers combined. To put it in perspective, in 1910, there were actually more motorcycles sold in the U.S. than automobiles. Less than 10 years later, cars were outselling cycles by over 100 to 1. Yeah. There were 20 million cars on the road versus only 150,000 motorcycles. With automobiles now totally dominating day-to-day -day commuting and transportation needs, motorcycle manufacturers' best hope for increased sales was to market their product as a leisure or sporting vehicle. And where better to promote a sporting vehicle than on the racetrack? The 19-teens saw the introduction and huge popularity of a motorsport called board track racing. These were steeply banked racetracks made out of wooden 2x4s that were called motodromes, or perhaps more accurately, walls of death. The races featured specially made and modified motorcycles that were stripped down with no fenders, no safety guards, no headlights, and no gauges. They had only one gear, no clutch, and had no brakes. Safe. Yeah, they were basically engines on wheels. They'd race shoulder to shoulder on tracks with up to 50 degrees of banking at over 100 miles an hour in front of as many as 80,000 spectators. Milwaukee's Motodrome was actually located real close to where the Hubbard Park Lodge is today. Where is that? Uh, it's actually in Sherwood. Oh, okay. And Hubbard Park is along the east bank of the Milwaukee River, south of Capitol Drive, near the corner of Oakland Avenue and Edgewood. Okay. So back in the 1910s, that whole area on the east side of the, of the river was an amusement park called Ravenna Park. And the owners had a motodrome built to help improve attendance at their amusement park. So I'm not sure exactly within the five-year site, within the five-acre site, where the motodrome was, but if you know where the Hubbard Park Lodge is, yeah. it's about there. About there. Okay. Walter Davidson, company president, and Arthur Davidson, head of marketing, had always been opposed to sponsoring a factory racing team. They argued that the company had been built on dependable and durable machines for personal transportation and commercial application. They saw little benefit from dumping money into a race team. Bill Harley, on the other hand, argued that their biggest competitors were successful against Harley's superior, more dependable, and more durable machines because of racing. Racers were household names among enthusiasts. These daredevils were featured in magazine and newspaper articles that sensationalized their skills on the track. They were big news, and in turn, they sold lots of motorcycles. It's no fluke that the phrase, win on Sunday, sell on Monday, goes back such a long way. Bill, Bill Harley's argument won, and Harley-Davidson was sponsoring a factory team by 1915. Throughout the second half of the decade, the teams from Indian, Thor, Excelsior, and Harley-Davidson were competing for the top spots on the podium. The Harley-Davidson team was so successful, they became simply known as the Wrecking Crew. It's said that the other motorcycle manufacturers actually had faster bikes, but they didn't have what Harley had. Better quality control, better reliability, better race management, better pit crews, and in many cases, just better racers. So as a result, Harley-Davidson's Wrecking Crew brought home win after win. And it was thanks to one of the wrecking crew that Harley-Davidson's are still known to this day as hogs. One of Harley's factory racers, Ray Weishar, who was nicknamed the Kansas Cyclone, started racing for the team in 1916. The story goes that Ray had a small pet piglet that the team adopted as their mascot. 
And every time the Harley team won a race, the winning Harley racer would carry the pig on victory laps around the track. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true story. That's why they're hogs. By the time the U.S. entered World War I, there were only three major motorcycle manufacturers left in the U.S. And not surprisingly, it was the three top names in racing, Indian, Harley-Davidson, and Excelsior. When the U.S. entered World War I in the spring of 1917, Harley-Davidson was given government contracts to produce somewhere around 20,000 motorcycles for military use over the course of the war, which equated to about half of Harley's production capacity. The vast majority of these military motorcycles actually remained stateside and were used for training purposes, military police duties on base, and for messenger service. Very few actually found themselves in any kind of combat situations in Europe. Harley's decision to contract only half their production capacity to the military turned out to be a brilliant one. The management of Harley's larger rival, Indian, decided instead to contract out 100% of their capacity for war production. While that may have been patriotic, this meant that for nearly all of 1917 and practically all of 1918, Indian dealers across the country were left high and dry with no new bikes to sell. For nearly two years, Harley was able to eat into its biggest rival, and by the time the war was over, it was Harley-Davidson that emerged as the biggest producer of motorcycles, not Indian. In fact, by 1920, Harley-Davidson wasn't just the largest motorcycle producer in the U.S., it was the biggest in the world selling over 28,000 bikes a year with dealerships in 67 different countries. The prosperity of the 1920s allowed Harley to introduce several improvements and innovations, including a larger 74 cubic inch flathead V-twin, the iconic teardrop-shaped gas tank, and those front brakes for the very first time. Unfortunately, the good times don't last forever, and the onset of the Great Depression landed a body blow to the motorcycle industry. Harley-Davidson, like all the motorcycle manufacturers, suffered the consequences. Harley sales plummeted from well over 20,000 bikes in 1929 to only 3,700 in 1931. The depression was tough on a lot of industries and a lot of companies, not just Harley-Davidson. But to get through the lean times, the company cut its prices to customers, cut advertising to the bone, and the company reduced the work week from five days to just two days for each worker. Harley also relied heavily on its existing relationships with those local governments and their police departments. Throughout the 1930s, many departments that normally would have purchased patrol cars chose to buy cheaper motorcycles instead. One innovative way that Harley managed to keep afloat and relevant throughout the Depression was through thoughtful and attractive industrial design. The bikes were lowered, interchangeable wheels and parts were introduced, and slowly but surely, Harley-Davidson was making motorcycles more comfortable less intimidating, and easier to maintain. They were also darn good looking. 1930s models are some of the most attractive bikes that Harley has ever produced. They were big bikes, but they had almost elegant proportions with their low stance, swoopy streamlined fenders, fat teardrop tanks, low handlebars, and a variety of magnificent colors. It turns out that inexpensive paint can make a world of difference, and the company sold a variety of two-tone combinations red and black, olive and maroon, blue and silver, black and cream, and bright green with silver. They also let the art department go wild with a number of complementing art deco paint designs on the gas tanks. They were simply beautiful bikes. 
Although research and development had been slashed throughout the 30s, Harley-Davidson did manage to push through a brand new 61-inch single-cam overhead valve 40-horsepower engine in 1936 that quickly became known as the Knucklehead because its polished rocker arm covers looked like the knuckles on a clenched fist. And then the panhead came in 1948 because it looked like a cooking pan. And the shovelhead came in 1966 because, well, it looked like a shovel. By the end of the 1930s, and as America slowly crawled out of the Depression, the only remaining motorcycle manufacturers left standing were Harley Davidson and Indian. It's estimated that since the invention of the motorcycle, roughly 300 domestic motorcycle manufacturers had come and gone. Way more than I ever would have. Yes, yeah, a lot of mom and pop shops, yeah. local thing, local shops, you know, just gone. Mm. And then, with a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the U.S. was suddenly thrown into World War II. It was an unprecedented move when nearly all U.S. industries ceased civilian production and concentrated solely on war production. Harley Davidson was no exception. Throughout the war, Harley devoted itself to producing its military WLA model. It was essentially a civilian bike that had modifications made to lighten and strengthen it for military off-road use. Nearly 88,000 WLAs were produced, not only for the U.S. Army, but they were also shipped to Great Britain, China, and Russia. The U.S. Army used them mostly for messenger and reconnaissance work, and over in England, air raid wardens used them in their civilian defense duties. Following the war, Harley-Davidson, just like the manufacturers of other goods, went back into regular civilian production. America had won the war, and after nearly two decades of depression and then war, the country was ready for some good times. The baby boom had begun, and America's suburbs with its front lawns and two-car garages were booming. So you'd think that in a time of peace, prosperity, and full employment, things would be great for a producer of a leisure-time vehicle, right? Yeah. Well, oddly enough, not so much. You see, the management of Harley-Davidson, the corporation, and its founders had always done their part to promote a positive and responsible image of both motorcycles and their riders. Its dealers actively encouraged riders to respect those around them on the road and to act in a civilized and non-threatening way in public. Okay, sure, prior to the war, there had always been a very small number of rowdies who liked to get on their bikes and race some hell by scaring pedestrians with their loud and fast machines. But it was always just a small number. After the war, millions of young men returned home, and a number of them struggled to reacclimate to civilian life. Many of these men longed for the camaraderie, bonding, and dangerous risk-taking that they experienced during the war. Combine that with the post-war economy with good pay for unskilled jobs, and you end up with a bunch of restless guys who can afford to buy motorcycles with the time to hang out together. These guys would, to get with, these guys would gather together in packs of 30 to 40 riders. The bikes were modified Harleys with loud open pipes, and the riders were modified with outlaw attitudes. It was the birth of the motorcycle gang. The whole phenomena first gained nationwide attention in 1947, when the town of Hollister, California, was besieged by a motorcycle gang called the Booze Fighters. The story goes that the gang roared into town, drank the town dry, and proceeded to tear up the local storefronts. The whole event was featured in a Life magazine article that portrayed it as an all-out riot and was immortalized in a famous photo of a booze fighter drinking beer on his motorcycle while surrounded by empty beer bottles. 
It was an image that cemented the perception that bikers were nothing more than degenerates and hooligans. And then, of course, in 1953, the whole situation was further exploited by Stanley Kramer's movie, The Wild One, starring Marlon Brando as Johnny and Lee Marvin as Chino. The perception was that the whole country was suddenly exposed to these roaming bands of lawless thugs, eager to terrorize innocent citizens at the drop of a beer bottle. In the real world, in addition to the booze fighters, there were the Hells Angels, founded in 1948, the Outlaws, the Gypsy Jokers, the Market Street Commandos, the Moonshiners, and the pissed-off bastards of Bloomington, just to name a few. To compound matters, Harley's only remaining rival, Indian, also went out of business in 1953, and so Harley was left in somewhat of a quandary. At a time of unprecedented prosperity, when Americans were able to buy more consumer goods than at any time in the country's history, Harley Davidson was left as essentially the face of the motorcycle gang. It wasn't exactly the public perception that the company was looking for, and it definitely hurt sales of Harley Davidson's. What's somewhat ironic is that in the movie, Marlon Brando doesn't even actually ride a Harley. He's on a British-made Triumph, which leads to the next challenge that Harley Davidson faced in the 1950s and beyond, which was the rise of the imports. When Indian went out of business, Harley Davidson found itself with practically 100% of the domestic motorcycle market. However, tastes were changing and soon bikes from England with names like Norton, BSA, and Triumph were washing up on our shores. Most of these British bikes were smaller and lighter than the heavyweight Harleys, and they came with an aura of sophistication, you could say, kind of like what MGs and Jaguar automobiles had at the same time. And then in 99, something that initially seemed somewhat insignificant would turn out to be the biggest change in the entire motorcycle industry for decades to come. That was the year that the first Honda motorcycles were imported into the United States. These small, almost scooter-like cycles were easy to ride, got 200 miles to the gallon, could cruise at speeds up to around 50 miles an hour, and were more reliable and much, much less expensive than both its American and British competitors. A Honda cost only $215 compared to a full-sized Harley at over $1,200. And perhaps even more important, the Honda came with what would become the iconic advertising slogan, you meet the nicest people on a Honda. The ads featured students, young couples, housewives, and other respectable members of society riding Hondas. Mothers who would never in a million years let their kids ride a motorcycle suddenly found them saying, oh, okay, but only if it's a Honda. Honda had changed the perception of the motorcycle in the U.S., and they had changed the industry as a whole. By the mid-1960s, Hondas were outselling Harley by over three to one. Recognizing the foreign threats, in 1960, Harley bought half the shares in Italian motorcycle maker Aramaki to better compete in the lightweight and cafe racer market. By 1965, nearly half the company's sales came from its Italian division. By about the same time, sales of American-made Harleys were improving, and the company desperately needed to raise capital to upgrade its lineup and to increase production to meet demand. And so the decision was made to go public for the very first time. The company added electric starters on its big V-twins, something the purists derided as electric legs, and they introduced, that they introduced that shovel head engine in 1966. Although sales were increasing, shareholders were not happy, and in 1968, 
the board of directors voted to be sold to AMF, a company probably best known for producing bowling equipment, of all things. AMF poured a ton of money into Harley-Davidson, and during the time that they owned the company, they introduced several models that, that sold quite well, all of which were designed by VP of Styling Willie G. Davidson, who was the grandson of founder William A. Davidson. Unfortunately, AMF and the management team in Milwaukee frequently didn't see eye to eye. AMF thought it knew how to run a motorcycle company, and so they brought in what they called a scientific management team to revamp the Milwaukee factory to accelerate production. They showed up and started telling people with decades of experience on the factory floor what to do and how to do it. Some of the best and most experienced people quit, problems with quality control went through the roof, and the union went on strike in 1972. In response, AMF decided to move vehicle assembly out of Milwaukee and into an idle factory it owned in York, Pennsylvania. Labor relations at the new plant turned out to be no better than Milwaukee, and the union went on strike again in 1974. AMF was ultimately forced to settle with the unions to get production back up and running. It was also in the 1970s that Harley-Davidson literally lost an iconic piece of its history. Not long after AMF acquired Harley, management ordered a cleanup of the Milwaukee Juno Avenue factory grounds. And the story goes that in the cleanup, an old wooden shed that wasn't being used for anything got torn down and thrown in the dumpster. Wait a minute. An old wooden shed? An old wooden shed. Is it? It was about 10 by 15. <sighs> yeah, you guessed it. It was the original shed where the very first Harley Davidson was made. That would be so cool in the museum today. That's why it's not there. And there's Water? only, that's why there's only a light. Yeah. That light that's 10 by 15 and not the actual shed. So yeah, it had previously been moved from the backyard of the Davidson home to the factory to keep for posterity, and it got thrown out. And in a way, that whole story kind of sums up the whole AMF experience. So in retrospect, many Harley enthusiasts regard the 1970s, or specifically the period in which AMF owned the company, as its low point. It's difficult to tell whether Harley Davidson was a moneymaker or loser for AMF, but it was pretty clear that by about 1980, AMF was not happy with Harley-Davidson, and Harley-Davidson was not happy with AMF. So in 1981, AMF sold the company to a group of Harley-Davidson executives led by CEO Vaughn Beals and chief designer Willie G. Davidson. The deal was signed for $80 million, and the company went private. Harley was its own company again. But this was a particularly difficult time for Harley-Davidson. The company was losing out big time to its Japanese competitors, Honda in particular. Honda had recently introduced the Goldwing, a model that went directly after Harley's share of the heavyweight touring bike market. And truth be told, the Goldwing was heads and, heads and shoulders above the Harley in terms of engineering sophistication and overall quality. In fact, it had been designed by Honda's chief Formula One racing engineer. Beals, who was an MIT engineering graduate himself, toured several, several Japanese motorcycle factories and came to the conclusion that Harley's problems weren't foreign imports. It was internal mismanagement. As a result, he instituted a number of manufacturing reforms, such as just-in-time delivery, as well as a series of severe belt-tightening measures. He also oversaw changes in the design of the bikes that were, were meant to make Harleys more comfortable to ride and easier to maintain. 
These included the introduction of the soft tail, which had the look of a rigid frame bike, but had springs under the rear to give it a much more comfortable ride. And the introduction of the Evo engine, an engine that was oil tight, significantly re reduced vibration, and was easy to service. And so by the 1990s and into the 2000s, Harley-Davidson was back and riding high, just in time for its 100th anniversary blowout in 2003. But, oh, geez, just don't get me started with that whole Elton John thing. I mean, I remember uh, leading up into the party. I mean, there were wild rumors flying around town that the secret headliner was be the Rolling Stones or ZZ Top, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Steppenwolf, ACDC, George Thorogood, or even Bon Jovi. Or I even heard that maybe all of them were going to be on stage. And yeah, it turned out to be Elton John. So we'll just leave it at that. So in the years since, Harley's continued to innovate and successfully compete. They introduced their first liquid-cooled bike in 2001, the V-Rod. In 2019, they introduced their first all-electric motorcycle, the Livewire. They recently announced they'd be entering the electric bicycle market, which looks frighteningly similar to the very first Harley-Davidson. And they just launched their own certified pre-owned program, something that, something that luxury car manufacturers have been doing for years. It's an acknowledgement that in many cases, the biggest competition for a new Harley-Davidson is not a Honda or a Yamaha, but a used Harley-Davidson. So this was really just a quick overview of the history of Harley-Davidson. And if you have any interest in this subject whatsoever, then I highly recommend you visit the Harley-Davidson Museum right here in Milwaukee, where you can see all these bikes in person and learn so much more about everything we talked about today. Yeah, I... You know, when people come into the store, if they say, what should we do in Milwaukee? It's something I always recommend because even if you aren't. Even if you're not into motorcycles yeah. at all. It's I mean, so good. It is a good museum, a lot of great stories, yeah. and it's just a lot of fun for yeah. all ages. Yeah. And they, you know, they cover kind of motorcycle culture, pop culture. Manufacturing, engineering. engineering like, yep. All of it. All of yeah. it. And so if you like one thing, there's always something else. So yeah, yeah it's a great experience. So. That's our story for today. Thank you.